we'll jump in. Um, so if you guys want to turn to First Peter, chapter two. Um, you know, whenever, whenever, uh, so I guess you know, Joel with the counseling conference. And I guess they're going on vacation next week. So, uh, and you can also plan for your upcoming weeks. Um, but um, he asked me to fill in for for the next three Sundays, um, and it's always like, you know, what do you want to what do you want to talk about? And so, what do you want to go through? And so, I always have like de- different ideas that kind of bounce around, and uh, I usually lands on something like I've recently taught through. Um, in, in one of the classes that, that I teach. And so, um, so 1 Peter chapter 2 is just one of those ones, I don't know, just kind of kind of grabbed, grabbed hold of me that over the next few weeks I kind of want to talk about and a particular topic that we'll get to when we get to the third week um, when we talk about governing authorities. But it'll kind of set us up to, uh, to talk about some of those, uh, some of those issues as, as we go in. Um, so just kind of as a... Uh, as an introduction to First Peter uh, and what's going on, um, essentially First Peter's you know or Peter, first, it's not his name First Peter. Uh, Peter's writing a letter um, to a group. It says that are in the dispersion, and it says in the dispersion in in verse uh, right there in verse two. Let me flip to that. Verse 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are all like areas, regions in Asia Minor, which we know is Turkey today. And um, so it would cover a lot of where Paul, uh, Paul went during his first missionary journey and set up churches there. And so it was kind of an early place where the gospel had, had spread to. And there's a lot of those groups were represented during Pentecost when uh, Peter actually preached his first you know the first, I guess, uh, gospel message to um, to the people right after the Holy Spirit had kind of descended to them. So Peter writing to those groups and maybe established churches that were there. You know, some of those people might have actually heard him uh, those first days. Now there, it says that they're dispersed and they're scattered, which means that you know, using that language is that uh, you know people that are spread out um, for a particular you know purpose or reason. And we'll find out. Well, we won't. We won't get through. You know, if you read First Peter, you see all of the things that uh, Peter deals with and discusses uh, to the recipients of the letter. And it's always these issues um, that they encounter, typically because of persecution or um, the strain of either having to have fled and moved to this area, or them being in that area and the persecution had spread to up to where they're at. Uh, some scholars think that it is directly as a result, this persecution is a direct um, result of Nero's persecution um, when in Rome there was a fire that wiped out a huge section of the city that uh, most believe that Nero started himself. Uh, he wanted to you know, rebuild a um, kind of palace for his own, uh, for his own name and you know, namesake and grandeur and uh, set a fire you know, in this section of the city. And then had to blame, blamed it on someone, and he blamed it on the Christians. And so, because of that, there was intense persecution from the state, and it had reached into you know the kind of the fingertips of the Roman Empire, which got to this area. So Peter's writing to them and uh, kind of talking to them about some of the things that they're dealing with, and really how to respond. Um, and so, uh, I want us to kind of like think about you know that because when we don't live during that time, we're not dealing with the same persecutions or the same issues. But um, as we get into chapter two, you know, chapter one sets up. He talks about uh, you know some realities about who Christ is, 
about their salvation being secured in heaven and that there's nothing that they can lose and really like grounding them in foundational truths um, of their faith as he starts to then talk to them about, you know, some advice that he's going to give about how they live out their faith. Um, so if we were to think, you know, when people go through, you, you know, get, are going through a struggle or a tough time, some sort of trial in their life, what is a typical reaction? And I want you to kind of think about this. So I ask lots of questions. I don't know if Joel does, but I ask questions and then I want responses back. But so if he's like more one-sided, um, I want to hear from you. So that's just how that's just how I teach. So uh, these aren't rhetorical questions. Um, so uh, w- so what are some ways that that people respond if you are getting a direct attack from somebody else? Okay, and it could be because of what you believe or because of who you are or because of your background or nationality or, or status or, you know, so I want us to kind of think broadly. How do people typically respond in those situations? Okay, so defensively, sure. Um, how does that usually, if people feel defensive, how does that then they usually like react? If they're feeling defensive, that's kind of a posture. What would you say? Okay, okay. So they either, yeah, attack the, the problem head on or they, they run away from the problem. Why, do, why would they run away from the problem? What's that? It's easier, okay? Yeah, that's easier. They feel threatened. It might be, you know, and that could kind of play into it. You know, it's easier to not face consequences <laughs> than face consequences. Uh, why, why the fight response? Why push back? Okay, to, to prove you're right, okay, uh, I hear pride, is that right? Okay, so uh, pride could be, could be something, it could be coupled with that, you know, to prove you're right, you feel, feel proud. Um, it could be, you know, to just get some distance, right, you know, you feel defensive and you just lash out and kind of push back, and, uh, and all of those things are kind of coupled in to how we respond and so we'll see how Peter says. We won't necessarily get to it today, although he gives some direct advice right at the beginning about kind of like what not to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, all those things, like we, we often react. How do we often react? Do we, we often react uh, logically or emotionally? Emotionally, emotionally yeah. That ends up usually being our response is that uh, when we feel slighted against, we feel like we're not a part of the group, you know, whatever it is, um, that we act not reasonably, but emotionally. And some of you, you know, you know, who, who, have, who have kids, it's always easy because you see it more in your kids than, than in yourself, right? Because you're right, you know, but you see, you see deficiencies. And sometimes when you kind of try to give advice to your kids, maybe some things they say and react are just like completely like, out of, you know, reality. You're like, why would you think that? Why would you believe that? Why, you know, but they're speaking out of their emotions because they can't quite logically, you know, um, put down, like, why they're saying what they're saying. And so Peter's going to kind of, you know, get us back to, back to the basics. In chapter 1, he, he kind of talked about who Christ is and, again, reassuring them about their faith. But in chapter 2, uh, he starts off and he says... Um, in verse 1, he says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. 
Okay, so he starts out right away um, because of you know who you are in Christ and because of some of these things that I've I've told you about in chapter one. He says so because of these things, I want you to not do these things. So put away. Um, this shouldn't be a part of your lifestyle. This shouldn't be part of your tool belt, your arsenal, your reaction. And uh, these are the things he says. Now the first one he says. So he, he kind of has five different things, but they're really one thing with four kind of subcategories. The first one is malice. Uh, that word malice is evil or wickedness. And so when he says put away all wickedness, he's kind of like all-encompassing, take care of, you know, just put away your normal, maybe emotional reaction. You know, sometimes you react emotionally and logically in the right way. But often, you know, when somebody says something to us, it's usually later on that day we're like, man, if I only had said this, right? You know, because sometimes we just don't say the right thing or, you know, we're, we're just not prepared, um, and so are caught off guard. So he says, just put away all malice. And so that's, that's the all-encompassing evil or wickedness. Um, and he kind of clarifies it by saying these other things. He says, all deceit. And so deceit is treachery or cunning. Right? It's kind of that premeditated thought to undermine something or someone. Right? If, if you thought, um, you know, you were... Uh, maybe belittled in front of a group of people, you might think, hmm, how could I get that person back, right? You would, you would start, maybe the wheels would start turning about revenge, right? And there's plenty of places that we can look in Scripture that says, the Lord says, you know, revenge is mine, the revenge is not yours. You know, he's like, if, you know, if revenge is to be had, trust me, I'll, I'll take care of it. You'll just mess it up. And so it's an attempt to undermine someone or something. Now, um, you know, that, that is kind of the, the first way, like kind of getting to the logic of how we normally like might think, right? Again, it might be that fight, you know, we don't react right away, but we have still that something in us that something must be done. And it's, you know, we see it in the movies, right? When the bad guy is winning at first, you know, there's just something, that sense of justice that like somebody needs to do something. And we always love it when the bad guy, you know, when some sort of hero stands up and takes down the bad guy and, you know... Um, and, and, you know, we feel like there's some sort of victory when actually we probably should step back and say, like, was that the right thing that that guy should have done? But um, nonetheless, in our pure entertainment, it speaks to something that is within us all uh, to kind of fight back and to do something about it. So he says, he says, I want you to put away all deceit, right? Because if your motives aren't pure, I mean, there's one thing like something must be done about it. Maybe we can organize and use within our government structure how to like fight back and do things in the proper way. But this is kind of to like undermine them and to really like set them up for failure. Secondly, he says, um, hypocrisy. Uh, and so this word hypocrisy is used in, in ancient times uh, to talk about really somebody who is playing a part in a, in, in a play as an actor. And so it's to present yourself as one thing, but truly having other motives. And so the deceit part would might be like, you know, I'm just going to go and sabotage. This one would be like, I'm going to go sabotage, but I'm going to pretend I'm on this person's side and then undermine them in some way. Right. And so you know, get on this person's good side so in the end, you know, you can, you can take them down, right? And so, again, we see that in our sense of justice, of, you know, informants and, and all of those things. But to have false motives is uh, really where it is. To have self-deception, to be purposeful about it, and to take somebody down. The third one he says is envy. Um, envy is to be jealous. Uh, it's to desire ill will of something because... You want something they have. Like, you recognize, like, this would be something that um, 
somebody gets, you know, attention or somebody gets, you know, accolades for something, you know, recognized for something and you see that in them and you want it so bad and the old, you maybe it's like, I can't have that. So at least if I can't rise up to them, I'll bring them down to me. All right. And so that's, that's what envy is. And so you can see, again, this is all wickedness, all the, all the things that he started, all malice that's in your heart. And he's kind of clarifying what those things are. And then the, the fourth thing or fifth thing in the list is slander. And that's actually to then speak poorly of somebody or, you know. And so the first one is kind of that mental, like, thinking, jealousy, and, you know, maybe working out. And then the slander is actually verbally, you know, putting somebody down. And often these things kind of work hand in hand in the treachery that we think of in the, the you know, in the evilness um, of our hearts. And so... Why would, why would Peter address all these things? So why, would, why do you think Peter would say, don't do these things? Because they were doing them. Because one, they might have been doing them, right? They might have been doing them. And so, uh, so we, don't, we don't know, at least from 1 Peter, that if he's gotten a report from somebody that they're doing particular things. Uh, but um, one... Either they were doing them, or he knows their hearts, is that they might be doing them. And he knows the situation and the trial that they're going through, and the difficulties that they're going through. And he knows that there are, you know, I mean, while there are a myriad of ways that we can see these things play out, there's really only two ways, right? There's, there's your way, and then there's God's way. And so... So he's wanting to stop and say, like, let's put the brakes on however you're feeling, however you're reacting, um, whether you are feeling the heat of persecution, you are feeling the heat of this struggle, this, you know, the difficulties that you're facing. And, and again, just think about, um, you know, those that are dispersed as, as refugees. I know that's kind of big, big political kind of hot topic, like thinking about, you know, whether allowing refugees in your country or not. But just think about, like, the if you were a refugee. If at some point somebody said, you need to, like, get up and move and go to another place, um, what would be the challenges that you would encounter? You know, if you had to get up, you know, if it was the opposite, where there was, you know, Syria is usually, like, the big country. If you got up and left and went to Syria, I don't know, how many of you guys have been to Syria? So one, yeah, so one, it's like, I don't even know what it would be like. But you can imagine there's probably a difference in culture, right? Uh, different in, difference in climate, difference in culture, difference in language. And not only that, like, what would you do, right? Can your occupation just pick up and move to, you know, another place? Some people have that ability where, yeah, I could do this wherever in the world, but a lot of people are tied to a particular region. So you'd have to, like, start all over, Again, you know, and, and you would, your friendship and your base, you know, the people that you know, all of those things would be new to you. Plus there would be like, oh, are you from so and so, such and such place? And are you, you know, and so the people that you're now your new neighbors already think poorly of you, maybe not all of them, but peop, some would be thinking along those lines. And so again, if you are one of those people, how would you react to those people? Probably for most, you just would probably, you know, and, and, uh, Paul says this, just like keep your head down. He says this in First Thessalonians. Um, just kind of keep your head down and do your work, right? And keep your mouth shut and just do the things that you're going to do. Um, and so, you know, Peter is like saying, like, first, just don't react in the way that you might normally want to react. And so that's really kind of the first point I want to make 
in this verse here is resist the urge to get even or maybe even to get noticed. You know, we're not dealing with those issues. And so how could we apply these even to, you know, where we're at um, in our own world? And so what does God desire? Instead of like speaking ill about this person or tearing this person down, you know, what would God desire for us to do? And so that's where we get to verse 2. He says, like newborn infants, I want you to long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Into salvation. And so what is the um, illustration that he's, he's making here? He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. Like what is that, what is that illustration that he's, like, that he's getting at? Okay, babies cry when they're hungry, okay? And they're not satisfied until they get fed. And they're not satisfied until they get fed. Um, sometimes babies cry, and as the parent, right, they, you know, the, the lack of be, being able to communicate, right, um, will, sometimes the, the parent will be like, do you want this? And the baby will, you know, respond either by accepting it or not, or not. And so he says, I want you to long for the pure spiritual milk because sometimes, right, <laughs> you know, instead of a parent giving you different options, we often go to different options about how we're going to solve our problems, right? And we'll say, like, well, maybe I should fix this problem by, you know, um, you know by, it could be one of the things that he's talking about, by reacting out. Like, maybe I'll solve this problem by, like, Calling, you know, calling a good friend of mine or a parent or saying, like, this happened to me and, you know, and just, you make me feel better, right? Not saying that, again, you know, that, that's necessarily wrong. Um, maybe we'll, you know, some people will self-medicate, right? Some people will get depressed and they'll want to just be with friends or go out and have a good time and, you know, and not deal with the problem and deal with it in these other ways. And so, but for as a believer, he says, I want you to long for the pure spiritual milk, right? And other times that, that um, idea about milk is talking to them as uh, Paul uses that uh, in 1 Corinthians that I, I had to give you milk, you weren't ready for meat, because, and that's more of like an immaturity. But this is like, I want you to realize that as babies, only source of food is milk, right? I want you to realize that your only source of spiritual answers and spiritual satisfaction will be granted by God, and he says, through, through your word. Through your word. And so, um, in hard times, he's saying devour the word, right? Because we sometimes have a tendency to not. And, you know, one, one reason that the Lord uh, brought my wife to me is that she's able to often, like, pull out some of those things, like, you know, and I, I love the, the easy one that's like, well, did you pray about it? And sometimes I'm like, well, no, I didn't pray about it, right? <laughs> Why would I go to the first thing that should really help, you know, when there's all these other things that, you know, I feel, you know, I can take care of in my own strength and my own flesh, right? Um, sometimes it's, it's harder just to, you know, not necessarily harder, right? How easy is it to pray? But for some reason, we just put that, like, down the list of things that, that we should do and is not our normal, like, reaction. And so he says, do that. Uh, James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom... And let him ask God. Now, James is like dealing with the same exact issue. He's dealing with Christians that have been dispersed and uh, they've been exiled because of persecution. Like the same thing that Peter's talking about. And right away, he says, rejoice in those trials. And he says, if you lack wisdom, if you just don't know, 
then I want you to ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. I mean, like, how clear is that? Will it be given, like, immediately? No, he didn't say that. Um, But the answers will be given to you. And maybe that wisdom is just like, just hold off. Just, like, wait. And I want you to just wait a while, because you're so emotionally wrapped up in whatever it is that's going on. I just want you to, like, put the pause button for a week, maybe even for like a month. And I just want you to like, just like, let it rest, let it rest. And so we'll get, we'll get to why, why that is. So when you go to the word, what is typically the answer that you'll find? What's that? Trust the Lord. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know how many times like, you know, if I've thought about all the times I've like taught and you know gone through different passages of scripture, like the end result is almost always like, we'll just trust the Lord. And so, but it's a it's a lesson that for some reason we you know we know cognitively, but do we know like holding tight fistedly as we go through whatever? And for some reason I don't know why we keep forgetting, right? So it's not a, like a learning in class issue. It's like a through our whole course of sanctification, just lean on Him and everything. And so it's so great, you know, when, when um, you know, why, do, why does God bring trials in our lives? You know, we say our, but even like the collective body in some particular people's lives is because you get to see when some people go through trial and they go through it with like such trust in the Lord, like it makes you encouraged because one, you're like, I don't know how I would react <laughs> if this happened to me. But then it's like, you know, it's, it's kind of that, that seeing that, faith being played out, especially when answers are unclear, um, it just gives you that strength and peace and assurance that you're like, okay, the Lord has some growing in my own life to do, but I'm so thankful that I can be encouraged by this other, you know, these other people who are, who are going through, through those things. And so, yeah, the typical answer that you get is, trust me, right? I mean, no matter what the story is, right, it's either like, the story was here because of this lack of faith, this lack of trust, this lack of God said he was going to do this, Israelites. If you don't do it, you're going to be punished. Plenty of stories about them being punished. If you do this, then you will, you know, find blessing. Plenty of stories about finding blessing, right? You know, and uh, how that gets played out in people's lives. And so, again, it comes down to, to that. Uh, in, the, in our community group, uh, we've been going through uh, Andrew Murray's book on humility. And so that's been a great, uh, we've, we've, I think we've done about 10 studies on humility, which is like, how, how much can we mine out of the idea about humility? And you're like, plenty. Because every two weeks when we go through humility, it's like, I needed this, right? Again, it's like, um, and so here, here was a quote uh, that, that um, uh, from Andrew Murray's book uh, that we, we went over in our last study. And Andrew Murray says this, and he's talking about going through, through difficulties, specifically referencing um, Paul's thorn in his side. When Paul was given a thorn in his side, and he pleaded with the Lord three times, remove this from me. And there's, you know, different views on what that thorn was. But God said, no, you know, like, no, I'm not going to do it. And because my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul rejoiced in that. He's like, well, thank you, Lord, for not taking this thorn out of my side. What he thought was something that he should have removed. God said no. And he realized that was actually the best thing for him. It's kind of as a context of what we're talking about. And Andrew Murray makes this personal application. He says, yes, let us ask if we have learned to consider a reprimand, just or unjust, a criticism from a friend or enemy, an injury 
trouble or difficulty in which others bring us, as above all, so think about that, some insult, some injury, you know, from, uh, from either an enemy or a friend. And so, see that as above all, an opportunity to prove how Jesus is all to us. It is the deep happiness of heaven to be so free from self that whatever is said of us or done to us is lost and swallowed up in the thought that Jesus is all. all right? You know, just to like the fact that you know, no matter what anybody says, it doesn't matter. Right? It doesn't matter if, if, you know, if the Lord has my back. Right? <laughs> what, what else matters? But unfortunately, you know, we always feel it does matter. It does matter, but and that's that's really in chapter one of first you know first Peter, why he grounds him in the truth of Christ. Like he starts off in the first several verses, like your hope is secure, like your salvation is secure in heaven. Because guess what? Even if you lost everything, you still get eternity, right? And so sometimes, and Paul did a, does a great job with this, and and lots of his letters of just like reminding us of the fact that like in heaven. Like, that is where our home is, that is where our reality is, that is where, you know, our expectation of where our lives will lead ends up in a place so much greater than where we're at right now. And so, so the first thing is resist the urge to get even or to get noticed, and secondly is to eagerly seek answers in God's Word. And third, which kind of we'll, we'll, we'll see the, the end part, uh, the next several verses, is to find comfort in Christ. And so there's this interesting illustration uh, that is used to kind of really um, spread apart and show that really there's only like two ways of thinking. There's only two responses that we can have to really any situation, and it comes down to it being rooted in Christ or not. And so verse 4 says, As you come to Him, all right, and so so. Peter already has that, that, um, that idea, right? What, is, what does that indicate, right? So I want you to put all these things, I want you to seek the Word, and as you come to Christ, what does that, what does that language convey? What's that? He's expecting that they are. And what is the idea that when you come to Christ, that Christ will what? That Christ, yeah, that Christ will receive you and, and uh, bring you in. So seek Him, draw near to Him. And he says, as you come to Him, and he gives this interesting description. He says, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. So a living stone rejected by men. So it's kind of interesting that living Living stone, right? Stones are not alive. Um, I kind of find this is kind of like an interesting side parallel that Jesus is described as a living stone. And there's basis in that, and we'll get to that in a second, why he, he choose, chooses those words. But what does Peter's name mean? What's that? Yeah, rock. And so in some sense, like Peter himself is a living stone, is going to like, that's what Jesus had identified him at. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't recognize that. But we'll see that, that, that uh, Peter uses that analogy uh, for all of us who are in Christ Jesus. And so he says, A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And so as you draw to him, you, know, you can identify, right? This, this, if you're feeling rejected, if you're feeling 
you know, whatever it is, um, by whatever situation it is, like first he says, as you come to him, know that Jesus Christ was rejected as well. Like first and foremost, you have, as the author of Hebrews would say, you have a high priest who can um, relate to you, right? Who can identify, who was tempted in every way, but was without sin. And so you have this, this person this, that you come to that you can relate to, right? And that's usually like why we go to friends or family, right? And with our problems, because like they, you know, we can relate to them. Like you don't go to your neighbor who's all like, you know, hey, this is a problem. And he's like, tough, deal with it. <laughs> you know, unless that's your sort of thing. And like, you know, you just need tough love. But for the most part, we go to those who, who, who we can find comfort. And, he, and, and Peter's just saying like, listen, Jesus is like first and foremost. That's why you come to him. Because he too was a living stone that was rejected by men. And Peter, Peter uses that same argument in that first sermon. So again, that picture of like he's writing to those that are in, spread out in these, these different churches that might have been there when he first preached. Um, you know, it would have been about 20 years beforehand, maybe 15 years beforehand, with the same sermon. And he, he told the Jews there that, this, this, that Jesus Christ you rejected, that you put on a cross. And then their response was like, you know, because of that, because you rejected him, or they said... You know, well, what can we do? And he says, well, repent and be baptized. And so it's kind of interesting if, if uh, there might, have been, you know, might be people that are there that, that would hear that same, same thing. So, but he calls him a living stone. And so what do typically, if I use that word stone or rock, like what do people typically do with stones or rocks? And again, there's like a lot of different uses. So one is what? Build things, okay? So you can build, like what are things that you can build? Nut smashers? Houses, okay, you can build houses, all right, um, in addition to nut smashers, <laughs> crushing acorns. So you build houses, so something completely useful, right? What else, can, what else do you do with rocks and stones? What's that? Okay, you can build walls, okay? So that's a useful. What else can you do with rocks? You can skip them across the river, right? I do that, you know, I, I, that's something I always love to do with my boys, just throw them in the water, and just when it goes like, bloop, I, don't, I just for some reason, God had made that sound to like give joy to boys, right? <laughs> bloop. And so, and the bigger ones go like, bloop, you know. And so, so, so some stones are like useful, right? They build houses, they build walls, they're used for early tools were made out of rocks, fashioned to sticks, things like that. And so rocks can be used as like something that can be useful, or rocks can be just picked up and thrown away, right? They can be something that gets in our way as we're digging in a garden. You hit a rock, you take it, you throw it away. Maybe you build a, a wall, you know, out of it later, but, you know, it can either be something that is something useful for you, or something that is a nuisance for you, or something that you just has no value to you. And that really ends up what Peter gets to when he gets to kind of this, this uh, illustration. Um, and so, so he says that Jesus is a living stone that was rejected by men, something that they didn't want. They didn't want. And we'll get to some other verses that um, explain that a little bit. But for Jesus... God sees him as a, uh, a chosen and precious stone. So when you say a precious stone, that gets to like something like, like, huh. You know, usually when you think rock or stone, you do think like walls and houses and things. You know, but but a, a precious stone would give you an idea of what? What usually word would we associate with a precious stone? What's that? Yeah, diamonds, gemstones, things like that. Something that like now holds value, right? Something that like accentuates either that you, know, you put on a ring and accentuates 
someone's beauty uh, or, you know, is a status symbol or something, but something like you would guard and protect and you wouldn't just, you know, um, use as a utilitarian object. And so he says that, that Jesus was chosen and pre- precious. And so he gets to verse 5. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, right? And so he has this idea that you too are these living stones just like Jesus. And you are a stone that is one, like, like precious. And, and it's kind of interesting um, as you start thinking about like, you know, precious stones, like would I make my house out of, out of diamonds? I guess if you could, you would, right? Um, so, so one is the feasibility, you can't afford that, but that's what heaven's going to be like, right? When you start seeing the examples of like the gates of the new Jerusalem, it's like, these jewels and gold will be covering, you know, the uh, the floor. Like like everything is like precious. Everything that was like rare commodities to us will just be like what is what is um, the norm in heaven. But he says you are these precious stones. But you you're being used. You're not just being put in a box for something, you know, like set away and as a trophy piece or something to accentuate something. But you are being something that is being used to be built. And you're being built up into a spiritual house. And so that indicates what your purpose is, right? He says you're a living stone, but you're not just a living stone. Like, so what do I do with this stone? You're a stone that is being built into something, right? That God has a use for you and has something in mind, a purpose in mind, and is to build his spiritual house. Um, So why do you think he would use that illustration of a house? Being built up into a spiritual house. Okay, a house is where somebody dwells. That's great. Um, who would dwell in this house? Okay, so yeah, you, you say you would say God Himself and the panoply of the three three persons. You know, whether the Holy Spirit or Christ Himself, that would uh, would reside. In this house, and what what else does stones in a house kind of indicate? How many stones do you need to build a house, right? And if you had one house that one stone that was missing, how structurally sound is that house? I mean, if you're like one stone, right? Yeah, but um, but for the most part, you know, the idea is that there are many of us that are built up and used, and so that illustration is picked up in other places in Scripture. Um, Paul uses that example uh, in 1 Corinthians 3 that he says that um, he, he starts talking about you know, the fact, and, and it's coming in context where he's talking to the Corinthians about um, them having preferences for particular teachers, whether it's he or Apollos or Peter um, or Christ you know, himself. And so he says, you know, we're all just God's workers. He says we work in a field, and he turns the analogy and says we we are builders of a house. And we've laid our foundation on Christ Jesus. And all we are are the people who are assembling the stones, and you guys are that house that is being built. And you see that in in other places as well. And so he says this, uh, following up to this, he says, you're being built up as a spiritual house to be, another indicator of what this purpose is, to be a holy priesthood. And to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And if you continue that 
um, illustration in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul will then continue and say, you're being built up into this house. And then he turns and says, like, you are a holy temple. And he kind of talks about the reason why they need to be holy uh, unto God. And so a little bit different take on, on the spiritual house aspect. But the same, same indication is that you have a, pur- a purpose and a use, that you are a spiritual priesthood, a holy priesthood, and you're to offer spiritual sacrifices, right? That God will dwell in your temple, in that spiritual house that all of you come and build together as believers in Christ Jesus. So it also kind of pulls together this idea of community, which is so helpful and, and necessary during times of trial. And these things that are, are, are acceptable to Christ Jesus. Um, this holy priesthood was, was the first time it was talked about was in Exodus when Moses was telling the people about going into a promise, the promised land. He's speaking on behalf of God. He says, Now therefore, to the Israelites, if you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. And a holy nation. So you see that echo, like the same thing that Peter's saying, right? You are, you are this treasure. You are this precious stone. But you will also be this holy priesthood. All right? And the whole purpose of, of why I've set the church apart, I mean, there's a couple things. One is to draw people in, right? So we've been given a commission individually as evangelism. But we are to here to be a light to the world. And how are we the greatest light to the world is through our worship to God. Right, and so you offer spiritual sacrifices. Um, I don't know. Does anything come to mind? I know we we kind of recently had a couple sermons on on this idea, right? When we got to to Romans twelve, right, that we are to be offering a living sacrifice. What do you guys remember from from that, the sermons? Just kind of a couple takeaways. Okay, bringing the best. Okay. So what, what we bring and the quality that we bring, right? Because God is deserving of all those things, right? And the, whole, the priests were to take that from the people, but he's taking that from ourselves and offering that to God. What else were some other takeaways? It's all about, it's all about giving, okay, right? And so uh, there's the idea of the, the living sacrifice, right? That it's, uh, what, did, what did that indicate? Sacrifices aren't usually living, Okay, and the idea that living is also the continual aspect to it, right? Because sacrifice, once you give it, you know, it's dead, it's gone, but the living is continual. Yes, okay. I think you Well, yeah, which should either today or next week, sometime soon, should be kind of explained, you know, uh, drawn upon a little bit further. And Paul does the same thing in First Corinthians, talking about everybody's necessity for God's use, right? So you're not an island; you're not to yourself. You're all you're all purposeful and important for for this one great work. Even though when we feel attacked, when we feel whatever it is we're going through for whatever reason, we feel alone and isolated. And so he kind of draws us into this this idea. And so that's their purpose. And then he, he goes to some scripture. He says, for it stands in scripture. So I love how you know, Peter always you know, goes to the Old Testament to support 
uh, what he says. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, what was the idea of a cornerstone? Okay, yeah. So it was a stone. It's, it's sometimes called the first stone, but the idea was that it was the first stone, and it makes it square. Why? Why does it make it square? Right. And uh, so if you're if you're ever doing a project, maybe like you know you know woodworking or something, you usually like may go through all of the the materials that you have, and you'll want like to start your project off, start with the best one, or at least make sure if you're making lining something up. It's right. I just laid some flooring, and it's like, if you mess up that first one. And uh, I realized after a little bit, like, it was starting to get a little off, that I was like, I need to go back and make sure that first one is right. And even after doing the whole thing, I was like, if I did it over again, you know, I would have started a little bit because you realize where you hit certain walls or certain points, like, you know, the material that you have left, you're like, ah, but... Sometimes you try to calculate it. My wife's like, you know, I felt like this mad scientist like with a clipboard, you know, like trying to like calculate everything and trying to figure it out. And so anyway, my calculations were off apparently. So but the cornerstone <laughs> is that idea that um, either I just said something really offensive or everyone's like going to the next. <laughs> we had, I know this is a totally side story. We had a pastor that... Um, was uh, preaching, and he said at, at one point, sometime in the sermon, like all, like a whole group of women got up and just walked out. And he was like, he was in preaching class, he's kind of talking about it. And he was like, I'm preaching, and I'm mentally saying, like, what did I just say, you know, in his head. And it turns out that they had these electronic buzzers for childcare, and it, it got reset, and all of them went off. And so all the moms thought they were being called out. And so, anyway. Um, so I usually trust that that's not the case, but. You just keep on preaching, though. Keep on preaching. So, um, so the uh, the um, so I don't know. Yeah, no, now I got myself off topic. So the cornerstone, yeah, is how you build your life. And Paul used that idea again uh, in First Corinthians when he talked about a foundation, building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Because no matter what storm or trial hits, right, if this foundation is rock solid, is secure. And the walls are set right and they're secure, then everything else will hold up. Um, I teach a, a robotics class. You're like, how does that fit? But I teach a robotics class uh, to middle school students, and they have to build you know, these robots. And so once they start kind of building a base and building off of that, they might have arms that reach out and grab something and pick something up. But you can tell, like when they get to the end, you're like, something's off. Right, And it could be something off that was the last piece they put on or all the way down to the very first piece. You're like, oh, yeah, that's off. You know, you counted five holes over here and four holes over there, so it's a little skewed. And everything else, you know, is skewed off of that. Start over, you know. And they're like, oh. So you kind of like, you know, but that's a good lesson, right? And so if, every, if something's skewed, but if your theology, if your faith is on a sure foundation of Jesus Christ, right, whenever storms hit, it's totally fine because you know, again, what the Word says, that everything, is, your hope is secure. How do you move forward? Again, seek the Lord and, and He'll give you wisdom. Um, but that. And so he says, you know, God said early in Isaiah that I'm putting a cornerstone that's chosen and precious. And if you believe in Him, you will not be put to shame. All right? It just means that God has your back. 
right? You won't be put to shame. You might think, you might be feeling shame, but you might be like, you know, I hope this is, you know, placing your faith that the Lord will get you through. But he says, in the end, you won't, you'll find out that the Lord will get you through. And then he says, so the house is for you, or so the honor is for you who believe, right? It is an honor for those who believe. And sometimes it's an honor, you know, it's an honor just to, to have faith in, in Christ, but sometimes it's an honor, and it's spoken of in a couple different places, that it's an honor to go through a trial. Because guess what? Jesus went through the same trials. And it's an honor to go through a trial because in several places we see that you grow through that trial. That through that trial, you become more like Christ. And you lean more on God because you look back and you say, oh yeah, he got me through that and that and that, and he'll get me through this. All right. So it just strengthens your assurance in God. So he kind of builds them up in that way. And then he turns and he says, But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Some would see that Christ is a cornerstone for their life and they build everything on it. And some would just say, This is just a stone that is in my way. And you realize that, you know, when you talk to some people that they're like, I don't want to talk about Jesus, or you're always bringing up the Bible, or, you know, you're saying, you're like, or they're just their reaction to it is like, this is just something, religion is something that gets in my way about how I want to live my life. And instead of it being a rock that is something that's helpful, it's in their path of life, it's a rock they trip over, and it's a stumbling stone a stone that just gets in their way that they would rather not have. And so instead of seeing that and saying like, wow, this stone is a stone I should actually set aside and build my life on, it's a stone that they walk by and will continually in their path trip over as they, as they go through that. And uh, several places, you know, we see, see in Scripture, Isaiah 8, I'm going to um, turn to that real quick if you want to turn there, and just read um, where he pulls... Uh, the idea of Jesus being a, or the, the Messiah being a stumbling stone. So Isaiah eight eleven. And so the prophet Isaiah says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and he warned me not to walk in the way of this people. So think about that context. Isaiah said, Don't walk in the way of this people. Why? Because this people is a people that you do not want to follow, right? I've actually sent you, Isaiah, to go speak and turn their hearts back. And he also told them in his commission, I'm going to have you go speak to these people, and they're going to reject you. So if that's not a good you know, statement, right? just imagine being hired for a job and saying, like, I want you to go knock door to door, and everyone's going to reject you. Good luck. <laughs> like, Can I quit? And no, you can't quit. So um, there's more to it than that. But So he says... Uh, he warned me not to walk in the way of this people. says, do not call conspiracy uh, all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, right? Because they dread the things that they, you know, can, can ha- that they feel are in their control. Um, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap of, and a snare 
to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken, and they shall be snared and taken. And then he continues and says, Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord, who is his hiding, uh, is his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, right? Do what we do. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. They will pass through this land, greatly distressed and hungry, And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth and behold, disastrous and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And so he just really paints a picture that Peter Peter paints is like, if your trust is in the Lord, even though like there is darkness around you, right? What's the worst that can happen? When you trust in the Lord... Those who do not have trust, right, they seek all these other things, but they, still the end will be the same, right? They will not have hope. They will still fall. They will still stumble. And it will be, you know, a snare to them. There is no path to hope in these other things. And so Peter, finishing it off, he says, They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And so... This idea when it says that they were destined to do, it's not because they were like predestined to do that, although it could have a, some truth to it. It's the idea that they have chosen to reject Christ. And so by the choosing to reject God's word, the, the path of hope, that their end will be their destruction. Their end will be a difficult life. Their end will be continuing to seek out answers in places that they won't find uh, find answers if it's outside of the word. And so, um, so how do we wrap this up? Well, first, you know, when we go through a trial, there's a tendency to make compromises, but Christ is calling us to like trust in him and to remember that in him, we're not only like him, right? We are living stones like him. We are rejected just like him, but we find our hope in him. And if he is our cornerstone, that although we may face trials, our house will be secure on a firm foundation. And those, for, those who reject Christ, though, there will be disaster and they will be undone. But sometimes we kind of leave it there and we think like, okay, now that just polarizes like the two groups, right? We're here and we're just like, you know, separate from them. But it also gives us a, a reality of how much they need, right? They need the hope that we have, right? We, we could say that if all else failed, if I lost my health, I lost everything, I still have Christ. If they lost everything, they got nothing, right? And some of them actually believe, like, this is it, this is done for. And so we understand that sometimes they're acting out, like they could be the ones that are causing us the problems who we might in our emotion want to react with malice or hypocrisy or hate, all the things that, you know, Peter said don't, don't do. But... Um, it just reminds us that like, sometimes they lash out at us because they have no hope. And so, again, if we are firm in Christ, it will also give us a better place to be a light and a witness of the gospel instead of doing things that will undermine uh, that light and witness. All right, let me pray and uh, let us go.